I can only remember one time in my life when I was slapped by a girl. To be honest, how many of you guys have to admit at some point in your life you were slapped by a girl? Well, I think I may have you beat. I was slapped by a girl in front of the church building. I was a senior in high school, and there was a certain girl who was a sophomore who kind of took a liking to me, and I found her quite irritating and annoying. It was one of those things where she was interested and I wasn't. And so I got tired of her bugging me, and I didn't know quite what to do. But one day, my friend Rusty tells me he's interested in her and would kind of like her phone number. And so me and my big mouth, I say, sure, you can have her phone number, and I give it to him without asking her permission. A few days pass, and I'm standing out in front of the youth room at church, and here comes this girl walking up toward me with fury in her eyes. Now, there's something I didn't tell you about my friend Rusty, who I gave her phone number to. Uh, Rusty looked kind of like a younger version of Orville Redenbacher. He uh, was kind of repulsive to all the ladies in high school. And so I give him her phone number, and here she is. She's coming up to me with fury in her eyes, and she walks up to me and calls me a name that I can't repeat in church. And after calling me that name, she rears back and boom, right across the face. And i got to say, as far as slaps go, I believe that was a 10 out of 10. Beautiful contact, great cocked wrist, she had a full follow-through, and the fury in the eyes. Man, it was a 10 out of 10. And so there I am, stumbling back at the age of 17, realizing that my big mouth can get me in a whole lot of trouble. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. Well, this morning we're continuing our message series through the book of James. We've been making our way verse by verse chapter by chapter through this amazing book. And last week, as we finished chapter 2, James told us plainly, faith without works is... Say it all together. Faith without works is... That's what he said. Faith without works is dead. In other words, if you believe all the right things about Jesus in your head, and you believe in your head all the right things about salvation, about heaven and hell, about angels and demons, all the things in the Bible, if you believe them in your head, but you do not live them out, then your faith is dead, according to James. We have to live out our faith in the real world. Real biblical faith is lived out every day. And like it or not, one way that real biblical faith is lived out is with your mouth. It's with your mouth. Any of us can fake real faith for a while, can't we? We can fake it for a while, but sooner or later, your mouth will betray you. Because Jesus said it so plainly, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in other words, if you've got corruption inside of you, if you've got fake faith inside of you, if you've got rebellion inside of you, sooner or later it will leak out of your mouth, won't it? Because what comes out of the mouth can only come out of the mouth if it first exists in the heart. And so open your Bibles today to James chapter 3, verse 1. Hopefully you brought your Bible with you today. If you didn't, I encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you. If you're borrowing one of those uh, Bibles from the rack, you'll find James 3, verse 1 on page 1197. The rest of you turn to James chapter 3, verse 1. 
Also, if you're sitting in an aisle seat, if you pass down those message notes to those in your row, that'll give them a place to jot down some notes and fill in some blanks along the way. So we need those Bibles in hand, those message notes, and a pen or uh, pencil in hand. We're going to dive into James chapter 3 today. I'm calling this message, The Taming of the Tongue. If you look at that guy on the screen, I think we've got that image up there for our title, The Taming of the Tongue. You have that there, DJ? All right. Anyways, we had this image with a guy with a duct tape over his mouth. And sometimes I've felt in my life that I could use a good piece of duct tape to cover my mouth from saying something stupid. But we're going to dive into this important passage today. And as we're continuing to be taught about how to live out our faith in the real world, James is going to teach us how to keep our mouths in check. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your day. And we're here, O oh God, to honor you to worship you, to learn about you more and more, and to carry out your word better and better. Lord, we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Lord, we want to have the hands of Jesus. We want to have the feet of Jesus. We want our minds, Lord, to be renewed just so we can think like Jesus. We want to have a compassionate heart like Jesus. And Lord, you know better than anyone, we need a mouth like Jesus. Would you teach us today from your word, how we can truly, with your help, tame our tongues in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, so James chapter 1, verse 26 is the first time James talks about the tongue in this book of James. You may remember what it, we learned a few weeks ago in James 1, 26. He's starting to talk about religion there at the end of chapter 1, and he says this, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. In other words, if you do all sorts of religious stuff, you come to church every week and you take communion every week and you participate in a Wednesday night Bible study and you're, uh, you've been baptized and you're involved in a ministry, if you do all of those wonderful churchy religious things, but your mouth is out of control... James says that your religion doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Before James gets into the specifics of our untamable tongues, in James chapter 3, verse 1, I want you to see that first verse of chapter 3. Before he dives into the, the conversation and the teaching about a toxic tongue, he, he has a few words to say to those who are aspiring teachers in the church. He says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I like how the New American Standard translates this. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. And then the message does a good job of paraphrasing this verse. The message says it this way, Don't be in a rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards. So if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you've probably heard me mention James 3.1 before. Because this is a verse I like to keep in mind on a regular basis as I step up to preach God's Word every Sunday. It's a word I need to keep in mind when I'm stepping up to lead a Bible study during the week. It's a verse I need to keep in mind when I'm doing marriage counseling. It's a verse I need to keep in mind even when I'm just having some one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about Jesus. I understand that when it comes to teaching, it is serious business. 
And God will hold me accountable if I'm not teaching his word accurately. Amen? So the same thing goes, regardless of whether or not you're preaching on a Sunday or you're teaching a Bible study, or even in children's ministry, sharing a lesson with the kids back there. James tells us loud and clear in this verse that God holds teachers to a higher standard. Over the years that I've been a pastor, I'll be honest with you, this verse has haunted me at times. I know that God is going to judge me more strictly because I'm in this role of teacher. The call to teach in the church is a great honor, it's a great privilege, and it shouldn't ever be taken lightly. A teacher's teaching has the power to draw people closer to Christ. And let's be honest, a teacher's teaching in the church has the power to repel people from Christ, to cause people to be chased away from Christ. Therefore, when it it comes to teaching in the church, it's helpful to bear in mind the wise words of Peter Parker's uncle. With great power comes great responsibility. Who knows how many people have been chased off by a church whose pastor or elder or Sunday school teacher stood up and was careless with how they taught God's word and they said something hateful or hurtful or something that twisted the truth of God's word and that person said, I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. And sometimes, even if someone had been in that church for 20 years, 30 seconds of foul, hateful teaching and chase them out the door. It's kind of frightening to think about. Now, many of you are sitting there saying, okay, God hadn't called me to be the teacher in a church, so hey, I'm, I'm, I'm off the hook, right? No, you're not off the hook. God has called every one of you who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ to teach in certain settings. God has called every one of you, if you are growing in your faith, to teach the basics of God's word and the gospel to younger Christians. If you are volunteering and back in children's ministry, you might have curriculum in front of you, but it's your job to look at it ahead of time and make sure that curriculum is in line with God's Word so you're faithfully teaching God's Word. All of us are responsible for sharing our faith with non-Christians and leading people to Christ. That's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the elder's job. All of us have that responsibility to share the good news of Jesus and lead people to Christ. And all of us who are parents have the responsibility to teach God's Word to our kids. Amen? Please don't just bring your kids to church on Sunday and allow the Sunday school teachers to do that. It's your job to be your child's primary teacher of God's Word. He's given you parents that responsibility. And so it's so important to keep these things in mind. But at the same time, James addresses those that are called to be teachers in the church. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, that if you desire to be a teacher in the church, maybe some of you here today have a desire to lead a Bible study. You have a desire to be able to get up and preach. Jesse right here. I teased him this morning. He's got the man bun going. So Jesse's right up here. He teaches sometimes on a Friday night to our teenagers. Does a fantastic job. God's put this calling on his life. And we're really excited to see what God does with Jesse as an adult. And so go ahead. Give him a hand. Amen. So God, God may have put it on your heart to teach in some capacity in the church. If so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, that's a great thing to eagerly desire, to have the gift to teach. It's a, it's a great thing to desire. But James comes alongside here in James 3, 1 and says, it's a great thing to desire, but be careful. Be careful. He says, if you're going to pursue the role of a teacher, check 
your motives. You see, he was writing to some poor Christians in the early church 2,000 years ago. And those poor Christians, many of them thought they were stuck in their lower socioeconomic class. And so many in that, in that lower socioeconomic class thought, well, one way that I can get out of this lower class and get a higher paying salary is to become a rabbi. If I'm a rabbi, I'll automatically be bumped up to a higher socioeconomic class. And so some Christians were thinking, hey, I'll become a teacher so I can make a higher paycheck. And James says, no, 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 no. That's not a good motive for becoming a teacher. If you're making a minimum wage right now and you feel like you're stuck in a minimum wage job and you want to make a little bit more money, please don't become a pastor so you can make more money. There are a thousand and one better ways to make more money than be a pastor, let me tell you, okay? Do not go into teaching in the church or pastoring in the church if your motive is not God's motive. And so James makes it clear. Make sure you check your motives. Your motives should be God-centered, not self-centered. Make sure that you maintain a healthy fear of God, understanding that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, in verses 2 through 12, James teaches us that whether you're a, a teacher or not, your tongue is very, very powerful in three different ways. First of all, in verses 2 through 4, if you're filling in those blanks on your handout today, first of all, in verses 2 through 4, James is going to explain that our tongues have the power to direct. Our tongues have the power to direct. He basically points that out in verses 2 through 4. So picking up in verse 2 here, it says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Wherever the pilot wants to go. And so the tongue has the power to direct. Notice again what it says in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. James is just being real with us here. He's just being real with us. He basically says, hey, Christians, face the facts. Every single one of us are screw-ups. Every single one of us is screwed up. And I guarantee you, if you're a human being, you've screwed up. And if you've screwed up, I guarantee you that your mouth has been the culprit with many of those screw-ups. Your mouth is certainly not guilt-free. In fact, whenever you get to where you can successfully keep your big mouth in check, you'll be able to keep the rest of your body in check as well. You'll be mature and complete because as the mouth goes, so goes the body. Amen? You repeat that after me. As the mouth goes, so goes the body. One more time. Say it like you mean it. As the mouth goes, so goes the body. Amen? It's just a fact of life. As the mouth goes, so goes the body. So, if you you and I want to become mature followers of Christ to consistently live out our faith, guess which part of us should be first in line for a major overhaul. Nailed it. Your mouth. If you know that you need some things to undergo an overhaul by Jesus Christ, parts of your body that are not acting and behaving like they should, 
first in line should be the mouth, James says, because the mouth gets us into more trouble than probably any other part of our body. Our itty-bitty tongues have an amazing ability to direct our lives and the lives of those around us. And in verses 3 through 4, James illustrates this with two great examples. Number one, he says, think about that little bit in a horse's mouth. I find this just absolutely amazing. You can have a 75-pound girl riding on the back of a horse, able to direct a 1,000-pound horse with just a one-pound bit in that horse's mouth. Isn't that remarkable to think about? This horse, if it wanted to, could buck her off its back and stomp her like a bug. It outweighs her by like 15 times. But a one-pound bit in the mouth of a trained horse can be used by a little 75-pound girl to steer and direct that horse wherever she wants it to go. That's pretty amazing. It sounds crazy, but it's true. And then James gives us the second example. He says, think about a rudder. You can have a a large boat that weighs several thousand pounds, and you've got a 20-pound rudder that can steer that large boat even in storms wherever that pilot wants that boat to go. It it sounds amazing that a 20-pound rudder could do that with a boat that weighs several thousand pounds, but we know it's true, don't we? And James says, similarly, that tiny little mouth and that tiny little tongue inside that mouth just weighs a few ounces. But those are some of the most powerful ounces in the entire human body. And he says, that little tongue can direct the course of our lives, so be careful. There's no wonder... It's no wonder that the Bible says so much about taming the tongue. For example, in Proverbs 10:19, it says, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is, is wise. I love that verse. When words are many, sin is not absent. In other words, if you want to keep your, your tongue from sinning quite so much, one of the easiest ways to fix the problem is to shut your mouth more often. Zip the lips. The more words that come out of your mouth, the more likely it is something wrong is going to come out of your mouth. So I have a tremendous respect for people that talk a lot less than me. One guy in this church, I won't call out by name, but he comes to mind right now, is excellent at holding his tongue and waiting a few seconds, sometimes even waiting a few minutes before he speaks in response to something that's been said to him. Holding the tongue is a beautiful sign of maturity in a Christian's life. Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. See, our tongues have the power to direct. But that's not all. James, in verses 5 through 8, is going to point out, not only do our tongues have the power to direct, our tongues also have the power to destroy. Our tongues have the power to destroy. Starting in verse 5, James says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea, have been tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil Full of deadly poison. You get the impression that James says the tongue is rather dangerous? Absolutely. The tongue has the power to destroy. James gives us in these verses we just read two illustrations 
that convey the power, the destructive power of the tongue. A single spark of fire, and secondly, a poisonous animal. Let's look at each of those. First of all, he says, that spark, that single spark can set ablaze a huge fire. You remember the ranch fire that burned in July and August of 2018? The ranch fire was the largest fire in California history. Catch this. The ranch fire destroyed 410,203 acres. That's several thousand square miles. It destroyed in four different counties in Northern California. This ranch fire was so destructive, it destroyed 410,000 acres, it destroyed 280 structures, and it took the life of one firefighter. Guess how California's most deadly, actually there have been fires that killed more people, the largest fire in our history, guess how it began? The ranch fire, 410,000 plus acres burned, it began with one man swinging a hammer at a metal stake in the ground. He was swinging his hammer at a metal stake in the ground, some sparks flew off, and a single spark ignited a fire that burned 410,000 acres. That's remarkable, isn't it? One single spark. No wonder James says here in verses 5 through 6, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James wants us to understand that just as a single spark can destroy thousands of acres of land, a single sentence can destroy thousands of lives. I've been told that Adolf Hitler's manifesto, a book by the name of Mein Kampf, that he wrote several decades before the start of World War II, I've been told that that book takes about five hours to read. So it's well over 100 pages. I don't recommend that you read it. But if you were to read Adolf Hitler's book, it would take you about five hours. Best of my understanding, it's about 75,000 words long. Someone has calculated that for every word in Mein Kampf, every single word in Adolf Hitler's book, 125 people died during World War II because of the Nazis. A book that takes you five hours to read, every single word in that hate-filled book represents 125 lives that were destroyed by those that lived out the words of that book. What a travesty. What a travesty. Words have the power to spark a destructive blaze. And according to what James tells us in verse 8, they also have the power to spew deadly poison. Look again at verse 8. It says, No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know what the most poisonous snake in Africa is? I was thinking maybe a king cobra, a black mamba, you know, Kobe Bryant's been on my brain the last month or so, maybe a black mamba. It's not the black mamba. The most poisonous snake in Africa is the boomslang snake. I hadn't heard of that one before. But the boomslang snake's pretty incredible. One drop of its venom can kill 100 cows. One drop of venom from this boomslang snake. Am I pronouncing that right? If anybody knows snakes, I think, I think that's how you say it. One drop of venom from the snake, catch this, can kill 500 men. One single drop. 
And in the same way, our words have the potential to poison hundreds of people. It's no wonder Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Say that with me. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Turn to the person next to you and say, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. One more time. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. In our hearts and minds, we know that this is true. Over the course of human history, we know, don't we, that hateful words have caused wars and they've destroyed nations. But we have this tendency in in our modern day to think as Christians, you know what? Yeah, those words in Mein Kampf for Hitler, I can understand that those corrupted thousands of people. I can understand how words coming out of Mussolini's mouth or or maybe out of Fidel Castro's mouth or Saddam Hussein's mouth or Osama bin Laden's mouth. I can understand that those words could maybe corrupt thousands, maybe even millions of people. But me, I really don't have that much influence. And James would say, you know what, don't be so sure. Your words and my words can break hearts and ruin reputations. Our words can destroy our marriages and burn bridges with our kids. Our words can get us fired in a heartbeat. Some of us have experienced that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if your big mouth got you fired at some point in your life. Worst of all, as followers of Christ, our words can sabotage our efforts to lead people to Christ. It really can. Many people have considered Jesus' offer of forgiveness and said, thanks but no thanks. You know what? I was considering Jesus, but you know what? I'm completely turned off by Christians' hateful words. Many people have been turned off from Christ because of what they heard coming out of the mouths of those who say they follow Christ. And so be very careful. The tongue has the power to destroy. And so in these first eight verses, James is making the case that the tongue has the power to direct And the tongue has the power to destroy. And then finally in verses 9 through 12, according to James, our tongues also have the ability to defile. They have the ability to defile. Picking up here in verse 9, James writes, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. I think that one of the most beautiful sounds in the world is the sound of a little child singing praises to God. You with me on that one? Parents, grandparents, hearing that little child sing praises to God, isn't it awesome? It just warms your heart. Sometimes I'll put little goosebumps on the back of your neck. You love hearing a little child sing, but, you know, something that kind of ruins it for me, when that cute little four-year-old is singing a a beautiful little praise song to God, and as soon as the song ends, that little four-year-old turns to her big brother and says, Shut up! You know, it's like, whoa, you know, that came out of the same mouth as that angelic voice that we just heard singing some song to Jesus. And it kind of ruins it for me when that child has something like that coming out of that same mouth. And that's just, in my mind, a little example of what James must be trying to tell us adults and teenagers here today. He says, you shouldn't be saying, God bless you, to someone at church on a Sunday morning and then dropping an F-bomb on the drive home for the guy that cuts you off on the road. 
He says, brother, I'm going to pray for you today. You shouldn't be saying that if you're cursing out your wife or your kids when you get home. You shouldn't be having this beautiful, lovely, God-adoring language come out of your mouth one moment if you're critical and condemning the next moment. He says you're praising God, and out of that same mouth, you're cursing men who have been made in God's likeness. So Christians, if you're serious about growing in your faith, if you're serious about following Christ and and living a life that is honoring and pleasing to Him, you've got to make sure that this mouth isn't on both sides of the tracks. On the world's side, one moment, and on God's side, the next. Sometimes what has taken us weeks and months and even years to build can be defiled with a few hurtful words said in anger. We must allow God to help us tame our tongues. Because they have the power to direct, they have the power to destroy, and they have the power to defile. Husbands, I know a lot of you can relate with me. There have been times my wife and I have had a perfectly pleasant evening together. And I say one sentence, some stupid thing that came out of my mouth that should have been left unsaid. And I completely flushed down the toilet those prior few hours of a wonderful time my wife and I had enjoyed. We know, don't we, we can sabotage a very good thing in just a few quick seconds. We have to be careful not to defile the hard work we've done and the great words we've spoken by having unfit words come out of our mouths. Now, there's some good news. If we allow God to take the reign of our tongues every single day, He can use our tongues to direct non-Christians into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? That God can help your tongue be used to see people saved and snatched out of the pit of hell and be put on a path where they can spend eternal life with God in heaven where there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more heartache and no more sickness and no more cancer. Hallelujah there. Our words can be used by God to lead people to Christ instead of our tongues being set on fire by hell. Think of the day of Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2. Their tongues were not set on fire by hell. Their tongues on the day of Pentecost were set on fire by heaven. And if God gets a hold of our tongue, He can set our tongues on fire, but not for hell's sake, but for heaven's sake. That's a beautiful thing. If God lights our tongues on fire, our words can bring hope, and they can bring peace, and they can bring healing in Jesus' name. And if God holds the reins of our tongue, He can keep our our big mouths shut for us. We have a hard time doing that, but He can help us. We can, he can keep us from defiling our relationships with that trash and that, that sewage that sometimes comes out of our mouths. God can do it if we give Him the reins. And before we move on to verse 13, let me give you 12 of the most powerful life-giving words in the English language. I want to make sure you have your handouts right there. Flip it over to the back. Write these 12 words down. These 12 words are 12 of the most life-giving, powerful words in the English language. And if you are serious about following Jesus Christ and giving Him your mouth to be used by Him for His honor and glory, I would be bold enough to say, if you do not speak Christians these 12 words on a regular basis, then more destruction is coming out of your mouth than you might realize. These 12 words are that critical. First three words. Please and... Thank you. Most of us were taught these words by our mommies and daddies when we were one or two years old. 
You were taught these words, many of you, when you were two years old, and I'm here to tell you these words are just as important when you're 82 years old. Please and thank you. Sometimes as we become adults, we forget to use these three powerful words. And if you never use these three powerful words, in fact, if you don't use them on a daily basis, there's a good chance that your words are more toxic than you realize. You've got to use please and thank you. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be loving to those around you with those words. Next two words. These are even more lacking in many Christians' vocabulary. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Husbands and wives, if you haven't used these words recently, you probably need to use them today. I'm sorry. Now, it's important to clarify how we say these two words because those of us who are parents know these words are not always said with the greatest tone of voice. Sometimes we say, I'm sorry, like a four-year-old. I'm sorry. Parents ever had that happen? You make your kids say, I'm sorry. That wasn't an I'm sorry. Sometimes we say, I'm, I'm sorry, like an eight-year-old. Sorry. That's not an I'm sorry. How about like a 13-year-old? Sorry. Come again? Sorry. Let me give you a little tip. If your lips aren't moving, that's not a real apology. What are you, a ventriloquist? Sorry. When you say I'm sorry, you got to mean it. Look the person in the eye. I am so, so Two of the most powerful words in the English language. Next four words. Now, let me give you the next three first. You are loved. You are loved. Well, Dane, why didn't you say I love you? Well, I love you is great, but let's be honest with each other. In a church setting, some of you aren't going to feel particularly comfortable going up to a brother or sister in Christ and saying, I love you. Okay? You know, it's like they're going to think I'm like a predator or something. You know, that, it just sounds kind of creepy. This guy at church I've talked to two times came up to me and said, I love you. It's like, yeah. But think about it. You are loved. You can say that to anybody. You can say that to a stranger on the street. You can say that to somebody who's in the pit of depression. Someone who's discouraged. You know what? You are loved. And what a wonderful open door that gives you to a conversation about Jesus Christ who so loved the world that he came and died on the cross for that person you're speaking to, whether it's someone in church, someone at work, someone at school, or a stranger on the sidewalk. You are loved. It's a message we need to share with people more often. Number four, these are four words, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Don't simply say, I'll pray for you, because if you're like me, there's a good chance you'll forget I'm praying for you, lets the person know it's already going on. This is something I've already prioritized. This is something that's already important to me. I'm praying for you. In fact, let's pray right now. These are 12 of the most powerful words we could ever speak because God can take hold of these tongues of ours and He can use them for His glory. Please, thank you. I'm sorry. You are loved. And I'm praying for you. Christians incorporate those 12 life-giving words into your daily conversations.
and you will see your tongue be transformed for God's purposes and set free from some of those traps our tongues have fallen into. Now quickly, the end of the chapter, verses 13 through 18, James talks about wisdom here. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. As you probably know, there is a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge basically is the information that's in your head. Some of us have more information in our head than others. Some of us are good at trivial pursuits. Some of us are terrible. Different people have different IQs. You might have an IQ of 70. You might have an IQ of 170. We have different levels of information in our head. That is knowledge. But wisdom is something quite different. Wisdom is the skillful living out of the information that is in your head. Amen? So knowledge is the stuff in your head. Wisdom is the skillful application of what's in your head. So you might find someone whose IQ blows yours out of the water. You might be in a, in a relationship with someone. You might have a family member, a friend, a coworker who has a pushing 200 IQ. But that guy could be an absolute ditz when it comes to wisdom. Because he doesn't live out the knowledge that he has in his head, right? There are some with the lowest IQs that are significantly wiser than everyone else around them. Because they have a skillful application of the knowledge that they do have. As a wise Christian once said, it's not the things in God's word that I don't know that worry me. It's the things that I do know that concern me. And what he means by that is, every single Christian, no matter how much of God's word you know, there will always be parts of God's word that you don't know yet. Amen? It's a lifelong process learning God's Word. There will always be parts you don't know. It's not the parts you don't know that will get you into trouble. It's the parts you already do know. Because God is going to hold you accountable for what you know in His Word. Amen? And so we need to make sure that we are carrying out what we know for the glory of God. Someone has also said when it comes to the Bible, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So don't get so caught up in the parts of the Bible you don't understand. Focus on the parts you do understand because most likely those are God's highest priorities for you today. So here in these six verses we just read, James identifies two very different types of wisdom. God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. And we don't have time to go through every single characteristic he listed here. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you three characteristics of each of these types of wisdom. First of all, let's look at godly wisdom. If you are living out godly wisdom, number one, your deeds are humble. Your deeds are humble. What you do is not done in arrogance, with an ego, with pridefulness. If you are carrying out godly wisdom, your deeds are humble. Number two, your relationships are peace-loving. You're not destroying relationships in your path. Your relationships will tend to be peace-loving. As it says in the last verse of the chapter, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. 
And number three, if you're walking and living out godly wisdom, your attitude is submissive. You have an attitude that is submissive, first of all, to God, but it's also an attitude that is submissive to others. Remembering what Paul said, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. That's not what the world does. I'm more important than you, is what the world says. I'm more important than any of you people out there. I'm number one in my life. That's not godly wisdom, is it? That's worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom is J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. Put Jesus first, others second, yourself third. Does that mean you're a doormat and you treat yourself like crud every day? No, it doesn't. It just means you put God and others ahead of your own needs. And if you're living out that godly wisdom, when you turn around and look at the relationships around you, you will see a harvest of righteousness. I encourage you, turn around and look at the relationships around you in your life. Family, friends, co-workers, classmates, neighbors. Look at those relationships. If you're living out godly wisdom, you'll see fruit in their lives because they know you. Secondly is worldly wisdom. If you're living out worldly wisdom, number one, your deeds are arrogant and selfish. Unlike with godly wisdom when your deeds are humble, with worldly wisdom your deeds are arrogant and selfish. It is all about you. Me, myself, and I. If you're carrying out and living out worldly wisdom, your relationships are divisive. Your relationships are like this, butting heads all the time, friction. And number three, if you're carrying out, living out worldly wisdom, your attitude isn't submissive like it is with godly wisdom. If you're living out worldly wisdom, your attitude is jealous and rebellious. And when you turn around and look at the relationships around you, as you turn around and look at your relationships, you will see a pile of rubble in your wake. If you're carrying out worldly wisdom. So, I really encourage all of us, take a moment. Do an honest evaluation of your relationships. As you look around you, do you see a harvest of God's fruit in your relationships? Do you see that your kids, your parents, your siblings, your your friends are having God's fruit grow in their life because you are in their lives? Are you seeing more like a pile of rubble in those relationships around you? Because if you are seeing that pile of rubble, it's most likely because you've been sowing seeds of division and arrogance and selfishness with what has come come out of your mouth. Words that caused a lot of hurt. Words that caused destruction. So what is God calling us to do today? Well, follower of Christ, He's calling you to humble yourself. He's calling you to submit yourself to God and others and seek peace in your relationships. He's calling you to share those 12 words that are so, so important. Please and thank you. And I'm sorry. You are loved. You are loved. And then finally, I'm praying for you. Our tongues have an incredible power to destroy. But by God's grace, they also have an incredible power to heal and inspire. So hand over your tongue to God. Some of us have some apologizing to do today. Some of us need to talk to someone after church today and look them in the eye and sincerely say, I am sorry. Some of us need to go home to our spouses and say, you know what, I have taken you for granted. I'm sorry. And go ahead and say, thank you for what you've done. I don't thank you enough for for cooking the meals and cleaning the house and taking care of our kids and paying the bills. I don't thank you enough for keeping my messed up self in check. 
thank you for what you do. Some of us need to reach out to family members who we haven't talked to in a long time, and we're sitting back like this saying, it's more their fault than mine. I'll talk to them when they talk to me. And God is saying, no! Christian, I have called you to take the initiative. You don't sit back and wait for them. You take the initiative because we follow Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ took the initiative. He didn't come down to earth when you and I said, Jesus, will you come to earth because I'm so messed up, I need you. He came before we ever called out to him. He loved us first before we ever loved him. He came to us before we ever asked him to come to us. Jesus took the initiative. And so we need to make sure with our mouths we take the initiative as well. We need to allow these tongues to be used by God. We cannot tame the tongue ourselves, but by the grace of God, He can. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we love You, and we thank You for this opportunity You gave us today to dive into Your Word and receive, Lord, some tough medicine about our tongues. Lord, I just want to say on behalf of all of us, Lord, we are sorry. You have called our tongues to be used to praise you. And we've done that. But then we've used these same tongues to curse men. Lord, for some of us, the profanity that has come off our tongues in recent weeks, Lord, we are ashamed of what we have spoken. For some of us, Lord, the hateful things that have come out of our mouth in recent weeks, Lord, we are sorry for that hatefulness that we have spewed. For some of us, Lord, that said things that were hurtful, things that were condemning, things that were critical, things that were mean-spirited, God, we are sorry. And I pray that you would forgive us. And Lord, James is right. These tongues of ours so often have been set on fire by hell. I pray, O God, that you would take them and set them on fire by heaven instead. Lord, James is right. These tongues of ours have spewed deadly poison. Lord, I pray that you would defang these tongues of ours. And Lord, depoison these tongues. And may they speak words full of life. May our tongues speak words of hope and peace in Jesus' name. May our tongues speak words of comfort and joy and healing in Jesus' name. As we come across those who are discouraged and depressed, may our words, O God, lift them up. And be used of you, Lord, to encourage them, to exhort them, to lift them up out of that pit of depression. For those, Lord, who have turned their backs on you, and if they died today would go to hell without you, Lord, may you use our tongues to speak the name of Jesus and to lead them to Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of Christ. Lord, use these tongues. Use them for your glory. Use them, Lord, to build your kingdom. And I can't even imagine, Lord, what you could do If every single one of us in this room give you full permission every single day to use our mouths. Lord, help us to carry out James 1.19, to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, to be slow to become angry. Lord, keep these tongues of ours in check. Just like every other part of our bodies, they are yours. Use them for your glory. Use them for your purposes. 
as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're here today and you're going through some stuff, I don't know what it might be. Maybe it's a, a diagnosis of cancer. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a relationship that's broken. Maybe it's a spiritual struggle you're going through. Maybe it's depression. If you're going through something and you want me to pray for you right now, would you just lift your hand? I want to pray for you before our service ends. Just lift those hands up. Amen. I see those hands. Anyone else? Anyone else? I want to pray for you today. Father, I pray for those who have just lifted their hands. You see every one. And, Lord, I don't know every need, but you know every need. Lord, where there is physical healing needed, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would touch and bring physical healing. Lord, where there is emotional healing that's needed, those that are discouraged or depressed or anxious, God, would you touch them and bring that emotional healing. Lord, those whose relationships are broken, Lord, would you work a miracle in those, uh, those relationships. Those, Lord, who you've laid it on their hearts over the last few minutes to reach out and take the initiative to bring healing to relationships that are broken right now. Lord, give them the words. Give them the courage today to reach out. And I pray that that reaching out would be received by that other person. Work miracles in relationships today. And, oh, God, I pray that you would work miracles spiritually in any person here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would not drag their feet expecting that they'll do it next week or next month because you don't promise them next week or next month. I pray that anyone who needs to get right with you today would say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I believe in you. I trust in you. Come into my life and wash my sins away and help me to obey you by turning from my sin, by living for you from this point forward by being baptized in obedience to your command and making it clear to God and the angels and anyone that's watching, my old life is buried with Christ and I'm being risen to walk a brand new life. Lord, give courage to every person that needs to start following you and obeying you today to begin doing that today. In Jesus' name, in the strong and mighty and awesome name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.